Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, another quick update from our friends at Bricklane Brewing. We are grateful for Bricklane's support through the weekly episode, Storytime. Did you hear Daniel Norcross's wild 904 triumph? Are you kidding me? Start with Storytime 59 and then follow it up with Storytime 60. Totally worth it. And also, the daily episodes. Adam and Jeff have been super busy. You can find all of those, the daily episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can watch them on the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel. There are currently 23,000 subscribers. We'd love to get that to 25,000. So if you are not a subscriber to the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel, please stop by, check it out, and if you like it, subscribe. And then you'll never miss a video. In Cricket, there are great partnerships. Podcasting is no different. It's the partnership between the show, Adam and Jeff, the sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing, and you, the listener. I'd use your name, but I don't know who you are. But thank you. In addition to subscribing to the YouTube channel, please check out Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Say hello and tell them the final word sent you. You can order all your Brick Lane favorites at bricklanebrewing.com. It's a super easy way to get your hands on all of the various brews. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the final word. And as always, thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the final word. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself And there's some stories I can tell you this is the final word story time. The first final word production coming to you in the year of our Lord 2022. Happy new jingle bells and all of the rest of it. In Australia, it's the soundtrack to summer with uh, Adam Collins, AC, air conditioning, and me, Jeff Lemon, GL, green lime cordial. Perhaps this is summer vibes, even if it's winter where you are, even if it's even if you're on the equator and there are no seasons, it's always summer somewhere. And here it is. So story time number 76, where we will wander back through the the history of, uh, as Michael Clark would say, the great game of cricket. Before we do that, everything's in disarray, uh, as we come to expect. But it seems that the cricket organisations are just ploughing through disarray in a way that they wouldn't have previously Big Bash games getting cancelled, almost a whole team's worth of Melbourne Stars players out, but they've just got a whole bunch of new players to come in instead. England pushing on, they've got no net bowlers because uh, they can't get them in there with the COVID situation. Most of their coaching staff is in lockdown, so they basically can't train, which is interesting for a team in their position in a series. Uh, but 
uh, the match will go ahead in Sydney regardless with 20 plus thousand cases a day at the moment. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting time to be in the world. Yeah, uh, we're number one in terms of the country that's growing quickly, uh, most quickly. Uh, I think cases per capita, Sydney might be one of the quickest growing cities in the world, something like that. So mm. the fact that the caravan is moving there, not great timing. And yeah, as you pointed there about the England team's training situation, there were reports from the Nets this afternoon that they had some net bowlers lined up to bowl to them. Obviously, they don't have as many coaches as they otherwise would with, I think, Five of them have now been wiped out, either as having tested positive or being close contacts. And those net bowlers got done just when they were about to start training as positive as well. So they are in, wow. um, they're in disarray in every possible way. I feel sorry for England at this point. I felt sorry for them before, but I really feel sorry for them now. If they want to, I mean, you can't make amends from 3-0 down having lost the Ashes in, in record time. By the way, and I'll explore this in a bit more depth, there is a suggestion that's come in following our weekly show with Rory Dollard the other day that this is the quickest a team has lost the Ashes. We know about mm. the 10 days in 2002-03. I'll bulk this up a bit and double-check it. I had a look at this after a few beers the other night and, and wasn't able to quite um, square it off. But yes, I'll credit accordingly those who came back to me and said, hang on a minute, uh, there might have been more overs bowled in 2003 to get the result for Australia. So mm. we'll see. But no, it, it, it's... Uh, of its time that we are seeing big bash games take place, even though there's COVID everywhere. It's of its time that there are restrictions as far as testing, or there's a barrier to be cleared for some people in the media centre and not others, which uh, which has meant that there have been a number of people who've um, who've hit the fence, which is far from ideal given the proximity in which we all work. Everybody wants it to keep going, ideally, but it, yeah, it is getting harder and harder. So I suppose it'll be fascinating to see what they do after the Sydney Test match. This could be. I mean, it's already grim. Imagine what this is going to look like on, you know, January the 10th or whatever the final day of the Sydney Test match is. And when considering how that circus, and probably will be a circus by then, gets to Hobart for the fifth Test match, again, we all want to go to Hobart uh, where there's less COVID and generally speaking where it'll be a nice way to finish what's been a fairly ordinary Mm. series. But um, can we get there in, in one piece? A lot of questions, not a lot of answers. Will they let us in? Will the uh, will the bold Tasmanians decide to go ahead? I mean, it'll it'll test their resolve, I suppose, over the next little while as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, you know, Hobart and and Cricket Tasmania would will do anything to get this test match there. The question will become, will England be willing to submit to anything? Uh, they've had another round of negative tests mm. today, which is great news, so of the Australian team. So Nick Madden. Well, aside from Travis Head. Who, yeah, aside from out. Travis Head. Yeah, sorry. That, that, that was since we recorded probably uh, the, the weekly yeah. show. So Travis Head won't be coming. And for a time there, we thought it was going to be Travis Head and friends. There were a couple of names doing the rounds, which corresponded with the Australian players that were brought into the squad. Uh, with Josh Inglis and Nick Maddinson, but Maddinson sta- and Mitchell Marsh. And Mitchell sorry. Marsh. So Mitchell Marsh and Marcus Harris, who was one of the later tests, and and Josh Inglis are all making it to Sydney via. Well, they're driving themselves. Uh, so uh, I wonder whether they're allowed to stop at the survey for a, you know for right. a chocolate milk, you know. And then uh, Nick Maddinson will stay put in Melbourne. Presumably he'll he'll stick around in the Big Bash where um, there's a lot of COVID as it is. I saw that Chris Rogers, who um, who normally mm. works with the Shield team, is coaching the the Stars tonight because they've had coaches hit the fence as well. And yeah, it, it, yeah. I mean everyone's got and, it. And England. England wanted to bring Adam Holyoke in as a coach and then he's been coveted out before he even got there. Before he even um, reached the squad. So, before he even reached the squad. What yep. is that? I mean, everything that's, that, that could go wrong. I, I think we're reaching the point now where this will be written up as the worst England tour ever in a pretty 
sort of competitive field. At least the worst tour of Australia. There might be a there might be an argument that the tour to India in '84 mm. might be worse for different reasons when they had to kind of flee the country at one point. But still, related but unrelated. The Melbourne Live Show. I said we we keep updating people. I think where we're at is that it's on until it's not. It's ten days from now. It's difficult for us to call it off with so many people having bought tickets until we know categorically that we can't do it in a way that's COVID safe. We just don't know. So we're just going to take another yep. beat on that. And the minute that we know what's going on, we'll communicate with everybody who's bought a ticket. All the information's there on our website at the moment. So yeah, I, I don't think there's a huge amount to add on that front. I mean, we would love to do the live show with Chris Rogers, but we're only going to do it if we think it can be done in a way that won't put people at risk. Yeah. So if you you know if you do want to come and you feel safe to do it, um, go ahead and buy a ticket. If because we'll be able to refund those easily if we realise that it can't go ahead. But yeah, we'll we'll come to that in in another week or so, I suppose, when when we know how the land lies at that point. So uh, may you live in interesting times, as the proverb goes. <laughs> uh, happy happy fourth calendar year of COVID nineteen. Here we go. And last thing, uh, I had a couple of messages asking why we didn't talk about India, South Africa on the weekly show. That is purely because we had sort of already agreed to just do the, the England shit show and the uh, and the New Year's Eve thing, which we the do New every Year's year. Stuff. So we will definitely turn our attention to India, South Africa and New Zealand, Bangladesh uh, once we get to the next weekly show, which we will record before the Sydney test match. I think I'm right in saying we go again. Presumably. Before yeah. the Sydney test and then the rhythm that we're in at the moment won't continue after Hobart or indeed if we even get to Hobart. But soon enough, uh, yep. we'll be back, uh, presumably, back on screens down the line to each other because I just don't get the feeling that we'll be doing many podcasts side by side between now and when I leave the country uh, based on uh, what's going on and seemingly every other colleague of ours testing positive or being a close contact. Yep, exactly that. But in the meantime, let's put the, uh, the mess of the present aside and let's go back into history where everything was always fine <laughs> there were never any problems in history everybody uh, frolicked in fields full of clover they ran across them with their arms open and embraced one another safely under the sunshine in the, the sunlit uplands of history we're going to do this via the medium of a game it's a game that we call a nerd pledge yes let's give it a good belt for the start of the year nerd pledge is a game that we play with people on our patron page here's how it works they fund the show they are the backers of this program and instead of sending us regular currency contributions they send us a specific number and that number relates to cricket in some way, and we have to work out what it is. Some new numbers to start us off, and this is a double header coming in from Bargov GNV and from VJ, who's uh, who's pledged in euros. Ooh la la! Now Bargov did not send through a clue. VJ did, uh, and the clue was this: you just need to not cover it. And if the number didn't already tell me one thing, the clue told me another thing. And I suspect that both of these uh, fine correspondents of ours might have the same number in mind. They might have a particular innings in mind. They might have a test innings in mind that has a strong relationship, Adam, to the Sydney cricket ground where we're about to be in a couple of days' time. Yeah, and the timing's great as well because it's an innings that's been discussed quite a bit in relation to Virat Kohli in recent days as well. There have been a number of pundits saying what Kohli needs to do is exactly what Sachin Tendulkar did at the SCG in January mm -hmm. 2004. He needs to stop 
cover driving it uh, to pick up on the clue there mm. from VJ, as Sachin did in that test, which finished the festival of Steve War, the Steve War farewell tour of 2003-04. I mean, you go through it. Yeah, Commonwealth Games silver medalist Steve War. Commonwealth Games silver medalist Steve War. Commonwealth that, that, Games that, silver that, medalist. That's exactly it. I mean, that series, just to go back over the top of it, because we have a few times, but there's Amazing Adelaide Part 1. Brilliant test match, Ajita Gurkha. We talked about that recently. VVS, Lakshman and Rahul Dravid, you might have heard of them. And that was after they were mm. a stifter unlucky in Brisbane. The test was drawn, but it was largely marred by rain. A brilliant century by Sarav Ganguly, which kind of got them in the series. Then at Melbourne, Australia fought back brilliantly. A match that was dominated by bat over ball. But then, I mean, Brad Williams and Nathan Bracken, the, uh, the replacements really with McGrath and Warren out of mm. the series and Lee and Gillespie not playing throughout. They bowled beautifully in the second innings on a Melbourne track that was rewarding you for pitching it up and, and hitting the cracks and it was kind of an old-fashioned Melbourne pitch actually and they bowled at India on the fourth day in about 40 degree heat. I remember sitting in, it was the last test match where I sat in a favoured position of mine in the top deck of the old Olympic stand which was about as far as you can get behind the bowler's arm on that side of the ground because there was a bar which bridged the Olympic stand to the old members but this was a great spot to watch cricket, pulled up on the side of the, on the fence there and uh, I sat there and um, and scored the whole test match predictably, um, <laughs> including that uh, that fourth day, yeah, where Williams and Bracken uh, were able to do the job. So by the time we get to Sydney, yeah, it's all about Steve Waugh, but it's kind of also in large part around Australia not quite having their first choice attack with McGrath and, and Waugh not there. You know, Jason Gillespie not being quite one hundred percent either. He missed Melbourne, Brett Lee in and out of form, but also Sachin Tendulkar being. Badly out of form by his standards, remembering that in 99-2000, India lost 3-0, but Tendulkar played some marvellous innings on, on the way through, including at the MCG. Well, this time around, he was coming into Sydney with 0-1-37-0-44, nicking loads, including in both innings at the MCG. So there was all this context to Sachin where Australia thought they'd worked him out around the fourth-fifth stump line. He kept nicking it, and they, and they kept catching him. So... When he walked in at Sydney, albeit on a belter, early, I think it was just after lunch on the, on the first morning or the first afternoon, uh, with the visitors 128 for two, two quick wickets, they got both openers in a hurry. Australia are thinking, like, we're right in this. You know, game on, two wickets just after the end of the first session, 40 degrees near enough, like one more wicket here and we can really pry them open and Tendulkar's a man out of form. But that would be, I think that was the last wicket they took on the first day. Maybe they got Lakshman uh, late in the day. I, I often have said that that's the best innings I've ever seen live. He's 178, 30 boundaries, probably 15 of them down the ground. Uh, you know, played so well on the onside. There's some YouTube real footage of that from with Indian television commentary on it if you look hard enough and they are just salivating with every one of those Lakshman drives and, and clips off the pads and, and all the rest of it. One of his three centuries at the SCG but this was the one the one that, that stands in my memory yeah. the most. But yeah at the other end though uh, Sachin and Jeff you've written about this quite a bit in the past but he made a decision that he was going to bore the Australians out. He just kept accumulating but refused to play a cover drive entirely and he frustrated the bowlers. He frustrated of the crowd who are really giving it to the Australians. You know, into day two, he went with a hundred to his name. 
into day three he went with 220 to his name with Australia only having India five down for 650 after two days batting there with party time Patel <laughs> and they kept batting for another 90 minutes I think it was at least an hour on the third day to declare it 705 for seven with uh, Tendulkar eventually 241 613 minutes 436 balls but not a single cover driven boundary out of the 33 he hit and of course Jeff there are, there are similarities there to an innings that we watched in 2016 in Adelaide with Usman Khawaja where he made a similar decision and it paid off in a similar way. Yeah, um, that that was an extraordinary one for Kawaja. I remember doing the comparison between his his hundred that he made at Wellington, where I think he made uh, it was hundred and forty odd that he made, but I think he made almost a century in cover drives alone. <laughs> he had like twenty boundaries d- driven through the covers in Wellington, yeah. and then not one in in Adelaide, not one. I remember writing of that Kawaja innings in Wellington that that he nearly took the boundary board off an extra cover for having smashed it so many times. So yeah, there was this beautiful yeah. and you know. And, that, and, and that's kind of the, the story of Tendulkar here too, isn't it? You go back to 99-2000 and that was, I mean, that was his signature shot. Maybe the off drive, but, you know, still that same part of the ground, driving down the ground or through cover, he was peerless. To put the shot away entirely, uh, it, I mean, I, I suppose Steve Waugh did it with the hook shot, but there aren't many players who said, I play this shot so well, but I feel like it's a liability mm. at this particular juncture and I won't play it at all. I suppose uh, England fans might have wished it for James Vince at different points and I already touched on Coley at the moment, who's been edging a lot in the last couple of years at test level, but yeah, quite sad staggering to think that he did that without one of his best weapons mm. uh, and and had the patience to do it to to say all right well I can bat ugly for this sort of period of time and and it was yeah I, I remember that match I remember you know watching all of that match through and, and quite vividly there was that aura around that Australian team that even though they conceded 700 they still might win it oh <laughs> yeah know? like there was still a chance oh absolutely I mean I was probably guilty of this as anyone if I was on Twitter in 2004 because this is certainly what I would have said to my dad and my brother they're going to declare at 506 199 runs behind and then they're going to bowl India out for 200 and then they're going to chase 400 I mean you know this was the era when we <laughs> thought this Australian team would do all sorts of crazy shit and and they definitely tried it on. I mean, Langer brings up his century in like 120 balls with a reverse sweep. That's Justin Langer. Uh, and then Simon Kadic plays a, a wonderful innings for 125, a quick 125, his first 100 for Australia. But they do get close to the follow-on mark. They're all out for, for 474. So they, they definitely kept it interesting. And they were going at fours the whole way through that inning. So, uh, you know, you, you think that most teams after conceding 700 plus in two days and change are thinking, well... It's about preservation. They were definitely like, no, fuck it. How do we win from here? It's getting to 506. <laughs> but yeah, India yeah. batted again and, and, and set Australia 443. And the same applied, I reckon. Going to bet on night four, it wasn't like, oh, can they bat for 90 overs on the final day to save the test and square the series? Which in ordinary mm. circumstances with an ordinary team, any old team, batting a full day against India on what was a turning track would be hard graft. But they're like, no, uh, we will chase this to the end. And, you know, that, that reflected, reflected yeah. the fact that sort of Hayden and Ponsing and Langer and Martin were all out batting aggressively between 30 and 47. And then Steve Waugh comes in to join Kadich and they, they have a real go at it in the final session. And I, I remember watching that, you know, my thinking at the time was Steve Waugh will make a farewell 100 and mm. they'll run him down. You know, that's just what they'll do because, because 
why not? You know, we're, we're mostly on that fourth evening, you'd be thinking, I w- if, if you were supporting the team batting, you'd be thinking, I wish there were fewer overs so they could see it out. Yes. Uh, I think Australian supporters at the time were more like, oh, if we had another 10 or 15 <laughs> overs, that'd be handy, you know, to, to chase down the runs. Well, in the end, it probably was, I mean, about 10 overs away. So Steve War's out with, I don't know, half an hour to go, caught it deep backwards, square leg. Sachin Tendulkar takes the catch, which is kind of perfect. So he's 20 runs short of that farewell 100, but it's still received accordingly. I mean, those shots of John Howard in the crowd and all the rest of it, the camera um, was trained on him the whole way with War off the ground. And um, I, I don't know why, but I didn't go that day. I mean, I went to every other day of that test apart from day five. I don't know what was wrong with me, but Kadic kept going. He was, he was not out 77 at the end, but yeah, the series ultimately gets squared at one apiece. And it caps like a great era for that rivalry. You could say the 2004 series was the end of that journey and it probably was with Australia final frontier and all the rest but I think with Steve Waugh's retirement that I mean yeah 04 is really special Gilchrist leading into victory there Mm. the performances of players like Martin Lehman Gillespie others number of others but also I, I sort of feel like with all the big guns still there, with the exception of Warner McGrath in that series, but all of them playing such a big role in 2001. Most of them were there again for 03, 04. Um, the brilliant test at Adelaide, the fight back at Melbourne, and then drawing it in Steve Wall's final match at Sydney, but mostly remembered for the powers of concentration of Sachin Tendulkar. Well, Bhargav and Vijay, if your 241 is Sachin Tendulkar, let us know in the DMs. If it's not... Let us know as well, or you can jump on the Discord. There's a Nerd Pledge channel on there for uh, for patron people to talk about Nerd Pledges. Uh, next, we have a triple header. We've gone from double to triple. So this number has come in from three different people, all in Australian dollars. It is $3.45. Darcy Matthews, we've had on the show before. Mark Stein, we've had on the show before. Craig Moore, a new one. I'm assuming this is Socceroos fullback. Has to be. Craig Moore. Has to be. Uh, Has to be. Couldn't be anyone else. Fresh from his penalty Um, against Croatia, straight into the patron inbox. Straight into the so you know he'll have a lot to talk about with with uh, uh, Andrew Gilberto, the, the great <laughs> Brazilian left footer. Um, once they jump in the Discord and, and open up a, a former internationals channel, so you know Craig Skipper, thanks for thanks for getting on board. Uh, let's talk about Harry Kuehl's red card against Ghana sometime. What an injustice! <laughs> Got kicked straight into him. Didn't even move. Now, <laughs> read every single day of the week. Uh, we've got a, we've didn't got, even move. We've got, yeah, yeah, exactly. He didn't move his hand. We've got a clue here from Craig. So there's there's a couple of clues in here, but we'll start with Craig. And Jeff, you can you can take this on. The clue reads as follows: Very quick, cuz your granddad didn't get a chance till fifty one. Good luck with that. Now. Yeah, first I thought Craig was just sledging me some sort of thing about my, my granddad, but it's not about me. It's, we've got to remember that. It's not about me. It's about cricket. 51. Didn't get a chance till 51. Bert Ironmonger was 38 days shy of his 51st birthday when he played his final test match. Mm-hmm. Um, Wilfred Rhodes played till 52. I found three first-class players who debuted at the age of 51, but none oh, wow. of them had any cricketing descendants, so I couldn't, you know, couldn't find any sort of grandchildren or that kind of thing. And then I thought, how did well, you find that? I, I, I want to know. I want to know how you found players who made. The, I mean, I'm always sometimes you've got certain tricks in the spreadsheets. I've got others. You've got tricks mm-hmm. in the sheets. Yep. I've got tricks. Uh, I want to know how <laughs> what what led you to finding out that three players made their bow uh, at age 51 at first class level. A lot of um, obscure um, 
like online dictionary entries and so on. I just I was like, who is really old? Show me really old cricketers, um, and then tracing it back and, and looking at birth dates and okay. dates of first matches and so on. There's there is a bloke who made a first class debut at the age of seventy two. 72 played in a first class match didn't have a long career but uh, you know but got there probably played for the so uh, probably for played for the non-smokers not the smokers if he was debuting at yeah. 72 probably played for the DB close 11 at some yes. point they, they rolled him in so 51 but 51 it, it did ring a bell because I thought there's a WG Grace thing about 51 isn't there which there is which mm. is that he played test cricket until 51 yeah now this is this is probably elliptical because because this I should be looking at the start not the end but he did he did play test till 51 and he was the captain and he dropped himself in the selection meeting for celebrity racist Archie McLaren ah. um, by yeah who who then came into captain the side Grace never had a grandchild who played test cricket or played first class cricket played any kind of professional cricket he did have five cousins so Craig has very quick cuz your granddad didn't get a chance till 51. Were there cousins? He had five cousins who played first-class cricket. He had two cousins who were both named William Rees, <laughs> get some original names, England, who had very quick careers. Um, they played five first-class matches between them. He's got another cousin called George Gilbert. I didn't know this until this week, who was the first ever captain of New South Wales in a first-class game. All right. He captain New South Wales in 1858 against Victoria. That was WG's cousin. But 345 is the number. WG Grace made a 344 yep. in first class cricket, but not a 345. And I would never dare suggest that anyone's got the number wrong, so I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't go down that path. Because the only 345, as we know, is Charlie McCartney, mm, not mm. to be confused with Archie McLaren, because I always get them mixed up. Archie McLaren, celebrity racist, captain of England, terrible human being. Charlie McCartney, batting genius, made 345 in, in a day, which was indeed quick cuz, if we go by the clue... <laughs> Has no relatives who played first-class cricket, though, Charlie McCartney. So I'm not quite there with Craig's clue and solving that, but is it related to Charlie McCartney? Doesn't it sort of have to be in a way? Because it was very quick. It, it wasn't even, I say less than a day. It was less than four hours. It was the quickest. And I know we've talked about this innings before. Yeah. I know we've, you know, but 345 runs against Nottinghamshire, a first-class bowling attack, in under four hours. <laughs> like 100 runs an hour including a lunch break, presumably. So maybe this is where Mark Stein comes in, who's also part of the triple header. Maybe he's looking at Charlie McCartney because Charlie McCartney is always good to talk about, the 345. Comes in a streak of four centuries in consecutive innings on that 1921 tour of England. Uh, three of them are against county teams and the fourth one is his 100 before lunch in the Headingley Test. So only Victor Trumper has done that on the first morning of a test match by that point. Bradman does it later. And and Charlie McCartney's always talked about as the, the stylistic, the genius link between the eras of Trumper and Bradman. So it's, it's nicely fitting that all three of them had this very rare feat. It still only happened six times in test cricket. Charlie McCartney did a lot of good work as a slow left arm orthodox spinner, took a lot of wickets on a previous tour. But I've, I've loved reading about his batting this week in researching the show because I have done before, but it's, I think if there was any player that, that I want to see, that I could see, it, maybe it would be Gilbert Jessup, but it's probably Charlie McCartney because he's always talked about as he wasn't, he was a self-taught 
player. He was an autodidact. He didn't get training. He didn't get coaching. He was just a genius at his hand-eye coordination. And so he could play shots that weren't shots. He made up shots. He played shots that other people didn't play. He took ridiculous risks and they worked because he was just good enough to make them work. And so the the audacity of his batting is just marvelled about in every sort of written account that you can find of the era. And there's this quote, which I want to, to share from Ray Robertson, Glasgow, the cricket writer. How is this for a description? No other Australian batsman, not even Bradman, has approached McCartney for insolence of attack. He made slaves of bowlers. His batting suggested a racket player who hits winners from any position. Length could not curb him and his defence was lost and included in his attack. Wouldn't you want to strap in for a day and watch Charlie McCartney with 345? Yeah, I wish I could watch that. wish I could write like that. M- McCartney was the only only stoush that was had between Rodney Cavalier and Basil Sellers when they were putting up the sculptures around the Sydney Cricket Ground. So that was a joint project, right. which I've written about at great length. They wanted to have one player to represent the interwar period. So I think I'm right in saying that, that, that it was Sellers who wanted it to be McCabe and Cavalier, who was the head of the SCG Trust and a former Labor MP in the State Parliament, to be McCartney and, and Sellers prevailed. But I guess the point here is is that we all think of that Stan McCabe sculpture as being, of course it would be Stan McCabe. I mean, it, it's positioned right there at yep. the entrance to the members and it's such a distinctive pose from uh, the body line century and the way he's almost playing a hook shot whilst evading the ball. In fact, Rodney told me a story about how he went down to Barrel to find the equipment that Bradman war in that series to get a feel for how McCabe would have looked and felt when going out to bat. I think they used Steve Waugh as the model for it or something like that, or at least Steve Waugh was involved in, I guess, when they were working out how to design the McCabe shot that would be uh, marked in sculpture. So, yeah, so an extra bit there. Just to give a sense of, like, McCartney, yeah, that brilliant Ashes of 1921, which we talked about before, and, and the 345 in four hours, the quickest triple of all time. But yeah, he was held in really high esteem uh, even a century after he played. Mm. So that's that's what I've got for, for Craig uh, and for Mark. And you, you've taken a different line for Darcy, I believe. Yes, I have. Right. So for Darcy, there's this one word in the clue, and that's serendipitous. And I kind of looked at it, Jeff, and I thought, well, serendipity and three, four, five. Well, I can certainly say something for 45. You know, 45 runs mm. being the margin in the first test match and then 100 wow. years later in the, first, in, in the, the centenary, centenary test. Claxon, our, first, our first mention of the centenary <laughs> test in 2022. <laughs> but I'm not going to go there specifically, but the thought crossed my mind, is there a third 45 that I need to be looking for to not complete the sequence but something else that might... Be as yeah, you know, be striking in terms of a forty-five run margin. As I say, we all know is, about. Is it? Is it that we soon we would be due, uh, as has been pointed out to me, for the hundred and fiftieth anniversary of the first Test match? And Ooh. you know my thoughts on one hundred and fifty bullshit anniversary. Hang but on, though. Two thousand and twenty-seven. Two twenty-seven. Yeah. The third instalment of of marking 
the time since the first test match. And we won't even be that old. I mean, we'll still be kind of floating around doing our thing. We should start lobbying for that. We should start lobbying the MCC and the MCC to issue invitations and mm. kind of do it all again. I think even though, as you say, 150, yeah, not quite the same significance as 100, I think doing it in 50-year increments is a reasonable proposition. If we could have a... a I think I think, I think 50 years is more significant than 50 runs, you know? I think celebrating 150 years is probably more worthwhile than, than raising the bat for 150. Yeah, yeah maybe so. Let, that's something to work on. That might, there might be a column in that. Let's invite every living Australian and English test player uh, to the MCG in March 2027 to reflect 150 years from the first test. There's definitely something there. Given the rate that, that England capped them, can we afford to invite every living <laughs> English player? Well, it worked in 1977. I suppose by then the economy had recovered to a reasonable extent after the oil crisis. I don't know. 1877 and 1977. So I went exploring for another 45-run margin. Uh, there's never been a one-day international or a T20 between the teams uh, with a margin of 45 runs. There's never been a women's test between Australia and England resolved by 45 runs. The closest there is 49 runs at the Oval in 1963 when England won uh, by that margin. Mm. Uh, nor has there been a women's one-day or a women's T20 between Australia and England that, that, that's gone uh, by a margin of 45. Indeed, no other test match ever, men or women, has been resolved by 45 runs. So there is a degree of uh, focus on, on this number when it comes to those two matches. Just 11 one-dayers have, have been sorted out by 45 runs, which feels like not that many when you consider that's quite a common margin, isn't it? 45 runs in a 50-over international. Yeah. And given they've played thousands and thousands of them by now, Australia won three and lost two out of that 11. But where I basically landed was that, hang on a moment, have we ever really talked about the first test match properly? I mean, we've talked a lot about what Bannerman achieved and a couple of the individual stories. Mm. But have we actually gone through Tom Kendall. and looked at this test match in totality? And I think the answer is no. So I thought here's an opportunity to do just that. Now, I don't want to sort of steal Jared Kimber's thunder. He did a superb job on Double Century doing a version of this last year and the entirety of that first tour under James Lillywhite. But I just thought it was worth uh, going through the four innings of an extraordinary match. So as we know, Australia win the toss and Bannerman faces up to Alfred Shaw for the, the first ball in what would later be known as Test Cricket. Uh, he's still there 285 minutes later when Australia are dismissed on, on day two for 245. So 165 retired hurt for Bannerman, 18 fours, 67.35%. We, we know those numbers, but I guess it's even more remarkable when you scroll down and realise that the next highest score was 18 not out from Tom Garrett and then 17 from Jack Blackham. So, But we've done Bannerman and we'll do Bannerman again. Bannerman, we're cool with. We're sorted for Ian Wiz when it comes to Charles Bannerman. England... <laughs> England in reply, and his, and his brother. I'll just I'll just throw in Adam. You remember how I was looking yes. up the the worst Test openers in history mm, um, mm. by by virtue of their batting averages over you know those who'd had more than twenty innings or made more than four hundred and fifty runs or whatever it was. Alec Bannerman's one of the worst. I think he's third or fourth worst in history. Ever. Yeah, right. So it must, must have been some real uncomfortable sort of sibling uh, <laughs> rivalry around around the Christmas dinner table. I suppose Alec Bannerman with his. I suppose if you were averaging twenty one as an opener in in eighteen ninety something, you were probably doing okay. But it doesn't look so flattering these days. Yeah, you're not getting the quite the same testimonial treatment that that Charles got many years later, which, as it happens, was the first ever game on radio 
in Sydney. I digress. So England are all out for 196 in reply. There's a 49-run first innings deficit. 196 in 136 overs, uh, presumably four-ball overs, but still, it's a lot of overs. And uh, Billy Midwinter, uh, who played for both countries, eight times for England, four times for Australia, or maybe the other way around. I know it's yep. one, one or the other. He took the first Pfeiffer in Test cricket, five for 78 from 54 of those overs. There should be more about him, I reckon. I mean, we make a big deal of Bannerman, mm. but we don't make quite as much big deal of Midwinter with the first we, five we could haul. We did. We gave him a decent run on the show a few months ago, Billy no, Midwinter. He, sure. he had a good segment. No, I, I'm not saying that we have it on story time, but more generally, I think his name should be well known, not least for the fact that, you know, he was kidnapped by WG Grace so that he wouldn't play for Australia mm. in, a, in a tour game and he would play for Gloucestershire. Anyway, the second time around, Australia are routed for 104 with Irishman Tom Horan, who's also featured on this show, top scoring with 20. So again, a reminder that Bannerman, across two completed innings, the highest scores 165 retired hurt, and Australia his next best contributor is Tom Horan with 20. So Alf Shaw, who bowled that first over in, in Test cricket, also took the second Pfeiffer, first for England, five for 38 from 34 overs. And England has set 154 for the victory. And uh, they, they had a, a, a fair whack of time to do it in because uh, I think this was early on the fourth day. Enter Tom Kendall. You mentioned Tom before, but he becomes the final, I suppose, not unknown hero, but a guy who... Yeah, I just feel like it, it doesn't quite have the... I don't think if you ask the thousand people who's Tom Kendall that more than a couple cricket fans would, would know, and mm. that's on all of us, I, re- I reckon, for not necessarily placing these players uh, where they should be in history. Alas, uh, Kendall, who was born in Brentford, who are now, of course, back in the well, in the Premier League, aren't they, for the first time, but he was a Tasmanian for, for more than four decades. Again, as Jeff, if you've, you've told his story before, working for the Mercury as a typesetter there in, in Hobart. But um, yeah, Lily White's team didn't stand a chance against his well, like, you know, those slow, medium breakers, as they used to call them then. They were 62 for five and then all out for 108. Kendall bowled half the overs, so 33.1 overs, 12 maidens, seven for 55 to win the test match for Australia. He played the second in that series as well and picked up six further wickets, so 14 in a series of two tests. But never played again. Mm -hmm. He was described as the best Australian bowler, never to get a chance to tour England. He was nudged out of the squad in in 1878. And that second test, by the way, has just as many twists as the first, I reckon. But the difference there being that England hold their nerve and and are able to chase 122 on the final day and getting there by by four wickets to square the series one all. But the one we remember and and the one that, of course, was replicated a full century on uh, was, of course, won by 45 runs. And I hope... Uh, that is what Darcy is referring to. Serendipity. It's either that or the uh, film starring John Cusack, which <laughs> I'm sure has gone down as a modern cinema classic. What a premise. Let's write our phone numbers on, <laughs> on a, a, a $10 bill or whatever it is. And if you ever find it, then you'll... Mm, yes, good premises. All right, that's our triple header. Craig Moore, Darcy Matthews, Mark Stein. Thanks for playing. And after a triple header, we've dipped into the hat and fittingly, a man who is named after a beer glass, Mark Stein has won the chance to give away a slab of Brick Lane. Not the chance, the definiteness, the certainty of giving. Yep, it's it's just after the festive season. This is this is how we do things on this show. Uh, somebody in uh, in this case, two people this week win 
the chance to give away a, a slab of 24 of Brick Lane's finest beers of your choice. Uh, they will contact you. They will let you know what to do. And, and you, you could give them away to yourself. You could give them away to someone else. As long as that person is in Australia to claim their prize, that is all that needs to happen. Now, I'm not in the business, well, anymore anyway, of asking people to vote a certain way. Uh, however... If that were what I was going to do, I'd strongly encourage you to jump in the link on the show notes and to vote for the Brick Lane Beers, who are up to, to win the Hottest 100 uh, competition, which is taking place at the moment for Australian beers. We'll leave a link there for, for you to click and then jump into the ballot process and support their wonderful beers made by excellent human beings who are doing things the right way, supporting local jobs here in Victoria, sourcing their materials in a in a way that, that tries to live limit their carbon footprint along the way. Gorgeous packaging, great beer, great people, huge supporters of what we do on the show. And it would be wonderful if we could mobilise as a final word community mm. and help them uh, achieve their their goals and, and their, their aims at the uh, hottest 100 beer fest, which is uh, being voted on at the moment. Everybody loves the hottest 100. Uh, that's, what, that's what Australia was all about. That's what it was built on, uh, Charlie McCartney made a hottest 100. <laughs> he made the hottest 300. And, and you too, uh, I've just been watching some YouTube footage of Charlie McCartney batting. There is a little bit, not heaps, but there's a few grainy old newsreels of Charlie McCartney playing a few wild shots. Uh, so, you know, in, in some ways my wish to see that happen has come true. I wish there was more. But, uh, but Mark, yep, that's it. You, you win it. Uh, check out bricklanebrewing.com, everybody, and uh, we'll have another discount code coming up in the next week or so, I reckon, for yep. January. So uh, you can get things at an achievable price. And if you're not really a, a drinking person, they do some very tasty low-alcohol options as well. Yes, uh, I can I can confirm that. The offer code is on the way for January. Uh, keep your eyes peeled for that. We'll have it in the show notes as soon as it goes live and we'll talk about it the next time that we gather to make a podcast, which can't be far away given we're making this show every few days at the moment. Hi, I'm Natalie Jimonis and you listen to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Next number today is from Scott Lamprecht, and his comes with a clue. Uh, Jeff, it reads as follows. I've updated my nerd pledge number to $3.01, so 301 as he writes in brackets. This is a test cricket number, men's and women's, related to an Australian city that's never hosted a test match. Note, I did my own dodgy research to come up with this number, so the actual number might be one or three the other way. Got to love a clue that acknowledges on the way that are the involves A, dodgy research, and B, might not actually be the right number. So armed with that information, uh, what, what have it, Jeff? Okay. I will say armed with that information, I launched into this clue with zero confidence. None. I was like, okay. So I can't, I can't, ser- I can't use databases to try to search for something here because the number may not be right. I've got to build this number from the ground up in the same way that Scott has done. So I had to look, I mulled on the clue for a while and I thought about a city in Australia that has not hosted test cricket yet has a link to test cricket. And Mm. this is harder than you might think because most of the major cities have hosted test cricket. Darwin has hosted test cricket. Cairns has hosted test cricket. Canberra has now hosted test cricket. So, you know, all of the state and territory capitals have. And then there aren't a lot of other city cities that 
are big enough to be cities but small enough that they haven't hosted a test match. This is where you run into definitional problems too, don't you? I mean, hmm. in the UK, or at least in England, the city is very clearly defined by having a cathedral with a spire, isn't it? Something like that. It's it's like there's a very obvious Something way in like which that. you distinguish between what is a city and, and what is a town. It's not about population. It's about you know what it looks like. Whereas right. in Australia, I mean, is Warrnambool a city with forty thousand people, for example? Like I genuinely don't know the answer to that. But I mean, you could take quite a broad I, interpretation. <laughs> Although I would think that if you're thinking about Victoria, where we're from, Melbourne's a city, mm. Geelong's a city, Ballarat's a city, Bendigo's a city. You mm. know, is there another city? That's about it. Would you have another mm. town that you'd upgrade to city? I don't know. I don't think so. No. I, I mean, you'd ha- you have big towns, but is Shepparton, Shepparton not a city? Mildura, not a city. Yeah. Albury, Wodonga, two towns making one city, straddling the border. I don't know. I don't know. I think maybe maybe it's something like 100,000 head of population would, would make you a city. Okay. So the only, the, the only ones that I could think that are definitely cities are Geelong and Newcastle, right? Those were my two mm-hmm. when I thought... I don't have a lot of Test Cricket associations with Geelong. What about Newcastle? And then I thought, okay, so it's a number. He says, a Test Cricket number, men's and women's. So it's got to be a combined number. And I thought, well, what about how many Test players has Newcastle produced? Not 301, (laughs) but might they have played 301 matches if you put them all together? So I started looking up players who were from Newcastle. Paul Blocker-Wilson, who's umpiring in the Test Series at the moment, played one Test. Ray Robinson played one Test. Leah Poulton played two. Jim DeCourcy played three. Sally Griffiths played seven. Tim Ambrose played 11 mm. for England but was born in Newcastle. Didn't know that. And Greg Matthews played 33. So Newcastle has 58 test matches all up. Not that, not good. 301. Anthony well, Stewart well maybe, maybe if you folded in those who were born in Newcastle in England and added them to the Newcastle and New South Wales. Newcastle hasn't hosted a test match, but of course, just over the, I'll get the, I'll get the pronounce. Is it it the River Tyne that separates Sunderland from Newcastle and south of that being County Durham? And anyway, I'm sure that I'll have offended someone there. Tyneside. Tyneside. But yeah, in in Newcastle itself, maybe you, you get some cricketers adding to that 58, but that's for another day. Please continue. I think that given we've talked on this show about the underrepresentation of Durham cricketers for England, mm, mm. you wouldn't get to 301 even Good if point. you threw in all of the Newcastle UK ones as well. So, yeah, I, I did think I did look at Anthony Stewart for a minute because he played three ODIs and scored one run <laughs> and he was from Newcastle and I thought 301. But, no, it's a test cricket number. And I thought, okay, another. what is another city that I could call a city that has a strong test cricket history and then it hit me? Launceston. Ricky Ponting came from Launceston and he played a lot of test matches. So that would get us a long way towards 301. Mm. He played 168 of them. And I thought, who else is from Launceston? David, David Boone Clarence is from Boone. Launceston. Let us look to Launceston DCB. and pray to the man with COVID at the moment. <laughs> yes, and, and all good wishes to DC Boone, who apparently is fine and asymptomatic and will be back for the fifth test. And wouldn't it be great to have him match ref a test in Hobart and Ashes test in Tasmania? Come on, make it happen. After 52 so, PCR Booney. tests, he might be allowed in. <laughs> Booney played 107 tests. So add them together and we get to 275. Mm-hmm. We are a long way towards our target. What do we need? 301. Okay, who else do we throw in there? George Bailey, current selector, played five test matches in mm-hmm. the Ashes. So that gets us to 280. Ted McDonald, mm. the opening quick in Warwick Armstrong's team in 1921, he was from Launceston. 
he played 11 tests, uh, a very influential 11 tests. That gets us to 291. Oh, can we get there? James Faulkner, he played a test match in uh, at the Oval in 2013. That gets us to 292. Are there any other Launceston test cricketers? I tell you, this took a lot of work, but I, I found Greg Campbell. Yep. Greg Campbell was from Launceston, played four test matches. We're at 296. We're at 296. Can we get there? Who played four test matches and was from Launceston? Alex Doolan. Alex Doolan takes us to 300. And what did Scott say? This number might be one or three either way. So it's 301, (laughs) but it could be 300 or it could be 304. And I have got exactly 300 test matches played by Launcestonians for you, Scott Lamprecht. And I am going to put myself on the line and say that is your number but there's someone else maybe that you're thinking of who maybe played a couple of test matches who I haven't found but I think we're pretty bloody close. Bravo Jeff, that's superb. If you had have asked me and I was going through it I would have thought that Doolan played five test matches but he must have been left out for the third and Mm. final test in South Africa 2014 on that basis because I know he played two in the UAE so it must have been that he he played mate Made 80 odd in the second innings on Test Taboo in South Africa. Played the second Test at Port yep. Elizabeth and was left out for the third with Sean Marsh. Something like that. Just as just as Sean Marsh was, yes, because I think Shane Watson came back uh, and yes. maybe someone else came back into the yes. team. Okay, it was a fitness replacement thing. Um, I can't remember who else was out, but but that's that's what I reckon happened. Good stuff. Well, Scott, let us know. 301, and put it this way, this fits the criteria for if Jeff's not right, please lie to him or at least let him down <laughs> softly because that's a, that's a corker. Uh, thank you. 301, resolved, I say. Uh, next number. Now, this comes in beautifully in Swedish krona. Thank you to Richard Jansmore who's decided to send Swedish krona to the final word. 2801 Swedish krona. I have no idea what that equates to in other currencies, but look, it looks good in SEK, I'll tell you that. Um, (laughs) 28.01. No clue. Open field, open slather for you, Adam. What did you do? It would have been one of the last times that I used a currency that wasn't GBP or I suppose rupees or you know, euros or Australian dollars when I was in, in Sweden five years ago, six years ago, uh, now for Eurovision, where I had a, a fistful of krona, had no idea what it was worth and was buying everyone a beer. No, probably not. Uh, so I have no idea what the, the conversion rate is. I thought I would check a few different bits and pieces here before getting to an answer that became obvious, but more to tell. First of all, Law 28. I wondered, what, what's Law 28.1? What's Law 28.1? It, it reads as follows. Protective equipment. No fielder other than the wicketkeeper shall be permitted to wear gloves or external leg guards. In addition, protection for the hand or fingers may be worn only with the consent of the umpires. So... Oh. That's the, that's the David Warner rule, the, the David uh, the Warner elastoplast rule. on the hands in Cape Town. Yeah, so not being able or to wear those so half Elizabeth, rather. Yeah, we're quite fortunate in our jobs that we get to watch training in the lead-up to a test match, and very rarely do the players catch in the slips with bare hands. They have this, oh, I don't know, they're not, they're not like gloves with the fingers cut out of them, but certainly the, the palm of the hand is protected, uh, and I suppose that's what they're saying there, that you can't wear those kinds of gloves in the court. And I wonder if it's been tweaked in recent years or whether um, the players have mm. just evolved to the rule, to the law rather. Anyway, so I thought, well, what's next? Let's have a look at Test 2801. Well, of course, there haven't been uh, 2801 Test matches played yet. Uh, at the moment, right. the 2444th is taking place between New Zealand and Bangladesh Bay Oval at Mount Monganui. There have been far more than 2801 
uh, one-day internationals, though, in men's cricket. Uh, it was a fairly uninspiring affair in 2009 at Dhaka uh, in a rain-reduced game. 37 what looked to be painful overs, where Zimbabwe only made it to 119 for nine. A young Shakib Al-Hassan took three for 15 from eight overs with four maidens. Uh, Bangladesh were in no hurry. Uh, they got there in 32.3 overs by six wickets. Boring. Shakib Al-Hassan again uh, leading the way for Bangladesh with 33 not out. Uh, Mashrafa Mortaza was man of the match because of the early wickets and Bangladesh win the series 2-1. As I wrote that down, I thought this might be the least interesting match I've ever referred to uh, on, mm. on story time. The only good part is is that you do mention, you know, a couple of couple of faves in there. I always loved when Mashrafe Mortaza was captaining Bangladesh because I got to work a line into a piece about bangers and mash. Um, but, yeah, that's, that, that's he's, just an aside. He's always a great interview, Mashrafe. I remember talking with him a couple of times about the win in 2005 in Cardiff. He picked up Adam Gilchrist early on, didn't he? So a true journeyman, mm. most of the time playing with one knee. The, the man who bowled with one knee. But um, yep. thinking about the worst game ever played, it, it reminded me of an inscription inside the Wacker scoreboard. So I was writing a piece a few years ago about the Wacker and all the iconography around there and I went into the scoreboard, which I think, by the way, doesn't get anywhere near as much attention as it should. We often refer to the Adelaide scoreboard. Well, you know, the, the Wacker scoreboard there, which was built after the Second World War, I'm pretty sure, or at least there's a there's a, there's a plaque on it recognising uh, those who played for WA and served uh, between 1939 and 1945. Um, it's a gorgeous old thing inside there, the old hand reel thing going on there. And they've got inscribed in the wall the worst game they ever saw from the scoreboard. And it was a one-day international, again, involved Zimbabwe against India during the 2003-04 tri-series. On that day, I went and looked at the card. Zimbabwe made 135 in 36 overs, so quite similar to that game at Dhaka. Uh, and India won by four wickets, but took 31 overs to get there. So two shocking matches, which kind of relate to our number. Nobody took mm. 2,801 first-class wickets. However, WG Grace came closest to it. He took 2,809 wickets at 18 and 64 times he had a 10-wicket match, the big fella. And just on that chart, by the way, Titch Freeman, talking about final word favourites, no one's taken as many 10-wicket games as he did. He did it 140 times. But second on the list was our first ever dusty old bastard, Charlie Parker, from probably this time last year, Jeff, or thereabouts. He achieved it 91 times where he took 10 in a game for just one test match. Shame. Uh, But for all of that, I'm pretty sure that we're talking about Jeff Thompson's bowling average. And let me explain why. I'd imagine a lot of people would go, no, 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 Jeff Thompson's bowling average, 28 flat. And that's what I thought as well. And Tool's trawling through the chart and seeing that he'd conceded 5,601 runs and knowing that he'd taken Mm -hmm. 200 wickets. I'm like, hang on a second. How can his bowling average be a flat 28 to two decimal points? as it's always written up in Mm. Crick Info or Cricket Archive or whatever, when there's a one on the end, it doesn't make any sense. So I did the maths myself. Jeff Thompson's bowling average is 28.005. And Jeff, as you now know, given we've in recent weeks talked about the five getting rounded up, not getting rounded down, Mm -hmm. there was that point of confusion. Mm. You weren't sure whether to go up or down. 28.005. The Venger boys were. The Venger boys knew whether to go, you know, up. Or down. Do, 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 do. Anyway. <laughs> well, Crick Info don't, nor do any other websites. They've got it plastered everywhere. It's Jeff Thompson, 28.00. That's not right. Because the, the third decimal point is five, 
His bowling average is yeah. 28.01 when rounded to do decimal points. So everywhere no. that records Jeff Thompson's average, I've gone through all the websites, no. with the exception of one web page, which actually happens to be um, the Wikipedia chart of all test cricketers in Australia. With the exception of that, every single mm-hmm. cricket website has Jeff Thompson down yeah. at 28 I think we once again need to make representations to Crickinfo, not for the first time, and maybe if we are super lucky, this might have been recorded incorrectly in the Wisdom Almanac, and we might be able to get some changes made to the Almanac. Some errata. What a great way to start the year. That's the kind of thing that gets me up in the morning. Jeff Thompson's bowling average being wrong everywhere and actually being 28.01, which is, of course, the number uh, that Richard Chance Moore has sent us looking for today. It might have led us down the path of getting the final word recognised in wisdom this year in a different part of the book. How about that? Wow. Add it to our list of demands. When we, when we hijack Harrison Ford's presidential plane and have a list of demands, we want a 150th anniversary test match. We want a home test cap for Glenn Maxwell. And we want Jeff Thompson's test average to be corrected because there's 0.01, and sure, it's a bit harsh, rounding all the way up, but that's what happens. You've got to round up or you've got to round down. Well, I mean, it's just, it's just fundamentally 5. wrong. I mean, it's just fundamentally wrong. I, I don't know how they've... I don't know how it's ended up this way as Winnie comes in uh, at the back of the shot. <laughs> yeah. Uncle Jeff! Uncle yes. Jeff! I hope that yes, came through the is. microphone. That- <laughs> No, it did, but the best part was that, that on the camera, you literally had your BBC dad moment. I said, you're talking away. I saw the door slowly opening and then I saw a little head poke around and then actually wearing a yellow jumper like the BBC dad kid when he comes waddling into the room, like making a beeline straight for you. It was a perfect replica and it just played out in real time on our show. That might be a little clip you put. I know we weren't planning on putting out the film of today's video and we both look pretty ropey, but that, that might make the cut. Uh, back to Tomo, just to put a full stop on this. Uh, 200 yep. wickets at 20.01. For the longest time, uh, he was known for his 99.7 mile an hour ball against the West Indies in 1975. I've actually been looking at, at, at the... Uh, at the uh, I was watching on YouTube uh, recently the, the world's fastest bowler competition from 1979, uh, where he won it yep. with 91.9. I suppose they refined the technology by then. What I didn't realise was that in that test in 75-76 at Perth, where they were measuring the speed, that Andy Roberts was clocked at 99.1 in that test. So two blokes nearly hit 100. Of course, it took until 2000 with, with Brett Lee uh, in South Africa, who first went through 160, and Shaub uh, Akhtar did so as well in the 2003 World Cup at Nick Knight, and a few bowlers have, have done it afterwards. But back to 2801, even if it wasn't intentional, that, for me, has to be the bowling average of Remarkable. Jeff Thompson, and we are going to get it recorded everywhere it needs to be. I'm on it. I'm on it. All right. Well, Richard Jansmore with your Swedish kroner. That may not have been your number, but you have helped unearth a mystery. And not just a mystery, an injustice, a historical injustice that must be rectified. Uh, Thank you for the number. Terry Hogan is our second last on the show today. The number is 14. Yes, Terry uh, open inverted commas, Hulk, close inverted commas, Hogan. When I read Terry Hogan, I always just think of uh, Franz Ferdinand, you know, the 
Now I'm on BBC Two now, telling Terry <laughs> Hogan how I made it in. What I made isn't quite clear now, but his differences and his it's laughter is. So Terry Hogan is sent through $14.45 with a brief clue that just says, not since Faisal are bad. Now this is accurate, I mean, not accurate, this is relevant because we'll theoretically be going to Pakistan this year, Faisal are bad. One of the great centres of test cricket there, Australia's last test in Faisalabad was in 1988. Sports betting enthusiast Salim Malik was playing in that game, uh, but there was no 14 or 45 anywhere on that scorecard. And then it occurred to me, maybe, was this a reference to the last time India played Pakistan? Because they played there in 2006, but that was the second last test in the series, not the last test because they played in Karachi after that and Pakistan then toured India in 07 and that was their last bilateral test series. Mm. Uh, in Faisal about Sachin Tendulkar made 14 but there's no 45. Um, so I was sort of looking through this scorecard and trying to see if there was anything there. It's worth mentioning that in that match Shade Afridi made 156 of 128 balls. <laughs> including six sixes batting in the middle order for Pakistan. A strike rate of 122 in a test innings in 2006. Um, yeah. Shah Afridi will never not be a marvel for the <laughs> things he did during his brief test career. I think he only played 27 tests maybe. So he did great things in his time. Um, that was his last test ton. But then I did happen upon something interesting, Adam. So huge first innings for Pakistan. India responding. Uh, and they go big as well. But there's a big partnership of 210 between a young dreadlocked MS Dhoni and a fellow called Irfan Patan, who we've talked about on this show before, mostly in the context of Sachin Tendulkar wishing him happy birthday on Twitter on an annual basis. Irfan Patan is on the <laughs> annual spreadsheet. He gets a go every year. So Dhoni makes 148, and in this match... There are players including, this is a sports betting enthusiast, bizarre, uh, Cameron Akmal's there, Danish Canary is there, and Salman Butts there. The gang's all together. <laughs> MS Dhoni is stumped by Cameron Akmal off the bowling of Danish Canary, which frankly is an incredible <laughs> achievement. If those two combine to get you out, like, something remarkable is going on. There is a glitch in the matrix, let me tell you. When he's out, well. Patan is on 63. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, well, yep. well. Um, he, he, <laughs> Irfan Patan goes on to make 90 and then another final word fave, Abdul Razak, gets a bit of reverse swing with his mediums and pins him LBW, 10 runs short of that century that he would have been hoping for. Batting at number eight, I think, uh, this sort of all-rounder, Irfan Patan was pretty good with the bat. So he's out from the fifth ball of the 145th over. Thus, he is dismissed after 144.5 overs. What is Terry Hogan's number? 1445. Ah. 1445. Now, not since Faisalabad, said Terry. What does not since mean? Uh, this I'm not quite so sure about because Efan Patan did go on to get a Test 100 after this innings, after missing out. Uh, it was in that series against Pakistan in India the following year. Afridi's last test ton, so it wasn't to do with that. But I did think, why might Terry Hogan be an Irfan Patan freak? Why might he have a soft spot for the swing bowling Indian all-rounder? And I think, I may be wrong here, Terry, if so, I apologise, but I think Terry has a Perth connection. Maybe he's a Western Australian listener. And it was at the Wacker in 2008 when India won in that dramatic match and Irfan Patan was player of the match in that game. 
He made 28 runs in the first dig in an important little partnership with MS Dhoni again. Then he got both openers out. Uh, this might be a pop quiz for your local cricket knowledge, Adam. Who was opening for Australia in that match in 2008 in, uh, in, uh, in Perth? Well, I know one of them. I know Bucky was one of them. Yeah. Uh, did, he yes. open, did he open with... Did he open with Hayden? No. Hayden was out. Less obvious. Hayden was not there. Uh, Phil Jakes? Yes. Chris Rogers and Phil Jakes Ooh. were opening together in that match in 2008. Very good. So, Irfan Patan then comes up to bat at first drop as a night watchman and makes 46, second top scorer in the second innings behind VVS. Mm-hmm. And then he gets both openers out again and gets Stuart Clark when he's slogging in bowling Australia out short of the target. So he, he took five in the match, made runs in both innings and was player of the match. Only played two more test matches after that, but he had a good one near the end at Perth. So I'm not 100% sure what the clue means about not since, but I figure it has to be to do with 144.5 overs when happy birthday Sachin favourite Irfan Patan was out in Faisalabad in 2006. How's that, Terry? Very good, Terry Hogan. The dark of the matinee. I hope that satisfies you. I think one of the most recent times we were resolving a, a Terry clue, it was 41, and we had about six bites of the cherry, and I spent much of my time mm. in hotel quarantine doing that with Winnie around my ankles at the time. It was before she was walking. Now she just keeps yeah. busting through the door saying, Uncle Jeff, Uncle Jeff, Uncle Jeff. Or Until, Until Who Jeff. Who doesn't want to hang out with Uncle Jeff? Un- until Jeff. Who doesn't Well, I think, I think that, Terry, given... Um, well, not, not given that. It's just pure chance, isn't it? That you have won the second... The second Brick Lane Slab on offer this week. The reason there's two is that we stuffed up on the weekly show. Uh, we, we were so invested in our interview with Rory Dullard. And thanks for the lovely comments about that and our chat with Mike Atherton at Christmas, by the way, that they've been uh, really well received. Uh, we, we never quite got around to doing a nerd pledge number. And in turn, we didn't get a chance to give away a slab. We've already told you why you should vote for Brick Lane, why you should buy their beer, why you should look ahead to the discount code that's coming up later in the month. But, Terry, uh, it's coming your way too. You can on-send or, or, uh, or keep a slab of Brick Lane all to yourself if you see fit. The check's in the mail, so to speak, as it was for all the aforementioned uh, match fixes that uh, you mentioned in that clue. <laughs> Just, just loved, just very, very enthused about the 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 arena of sports wagering. That's all. <laughs> Is that a sin? Is that a sin? Who who amongst us has not thought that we could uh, potentially have a lucrative reward out of something that we already knew the uh, result to the future? The future is 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 not unknown for everybody. Put it that way. Right. We've got one more number in the show today. One more number. It comes in from Andrew Turner, and the number is $5.67. 567, nice and sequential. Uh, it's, it's, it's part of a step song, perhaps. Andrew Turner's number, what did you make of this, Adam? Yes, uh, Terra Turner, 5678. Boot scooting baby is driving me crazy. Um, test 567 uh, has driven me somewhat crazy before as well. I've looked at this test match in the past when making uh, the final Frontier documentary on the greatest season that was feed last year. I would put that this is one of the best test matches ever played. And I was just already in that in that headspace because in the previous clue, I was looking at the 2,801st One Day International and I saw 567. I'm like, I wonder what the 567th test match was. 
and it just happened to be mm. a cracker between India and Australia in 1964-65. So Australia visited there in 1956 and then they went again in 1959-60. So this was the third time they visited. Uh, the first Test match Australia won Fairly convincingly in the end, they, they won by 139 runs after bowling out India for 193 in the chase. We've actually talked about that test before in relation to the great Garth McKenzie, who took 10 for 91 uh, in that match. I can't remember who it was that sent us through 10-91, but we definitely uh, referenced McKenzie's figures there, which I think was the best return he had across his test career. The second test match, which started on the 10th of October in 1964, uh, was at Bombay, or Mumbai, as it's known now, and Australia. Sure enough, Bob Simpson said, we'll have a bat, thanks, pal, uh, to the umpire. I'm sure he was uh, offering the umpire. Why wouldn't he? (laughs) I'm sure nothing's changed uh, across the decade since. And uh, due to Peter Burgess, 80, Barry Jarman, 77, and Tom Vivers, 67. Of course, uh, uh, we we learned all about the Vivers family when Bill McGuinness was on the program uh, the year before last. Uh, Australia got yes, to 320. Vivas Las Vegas, as, as he should be known if he's not. I've been seeing Bill wherever I go at the moment. I'm watching Australian television that I don't get to watch in England. So I've been watching the newsreader with Rach after hours where he plays the, the bad guy and he's absolutely brilliant in that. And I watched the first step of another ABC show last night. I can't remember the name of it, but uh, he plays the leader of the opposition. So uh, I've been getting my fill of uh, of. Bill, uh, old cock, as he would like to be referred. So Australia gets a 320 uh, batting first. Chandra Sekera is in the match, though. Takes four for 50 from 26. More about Chandy later. Um, India take it slow and steady in responses, ease it in. They take a 21-run lead when they're dismissed for 341. So beautifully positioned after three and a half days. Tiger Pataudi, the son of the great man, leading India uh, by this stage. Top scores with 86 of the best. Now, it's... Uh, Important to note at this stage that Norm O'Neill, who in 1964, as we've talked about in the past, was really important to Australia's fortunes. He was pretty much at the peak of his powers uh, in this stretch of time, was so crook uh, that he couldn't bat in either inning. So he's on the team sheet. Australia batted first, but between when they started their first innings and when he was listed to come in at number five, he was already crocked. One of a number of Australian players who got quite sick on that tour. And I note that simply because this was when that suggestion started seeping into the Australian cricket culture that India is just too fucking hard. They did not want to go back there after 64-65. Indeed, it took them until Laurie's team in in 1969-70, so a full five, six-year cycle before they did it again. Um, But yeah, in no small part because Norm O'Neill couldn't bat. So what they were able to achieve with the lower order, Barry Jarman, the wicketkeeper, Tom Beavers, the off-spinner alongside Peter Burge was really important to kind of keeping them in the scrap. And before we go into the third innings of the game, I should also note that Tom Vivas took four for 68 from 48, uh, his best return across 21 test matches. So it's really well positioned. And Australia do a pretty good job the second time around as well. They make, I think it's 247. I haven't got written down, but, you know, third innings of the match, the ball's turning uh, and they do they do super well. 254, actually. They get skittled towards the end, though. They lose six for 28 after one of Jeff's favourites, Bob Cowper, uh, makes 81 and Bill Laurie make 68 it all goes to shit uh, and suddenly oh they've set sorry they've set in India 254 to win in four sessions and it's perfectly in balance at stumps on day four with the home side 74 for three and then 42,000 people pile into the ground for the resumption on the fifth morning the fifth and final day but after not long 
beyond that, uh, India slump uh, to 122 for six with uh, Garth McKenzie um, knocking over Hanuman Singh. And it looks like it's Australia's game to win and they're going to go uh, 2 0 up in the series. Enter the Tiger, Tiger Patauri, who is in there at number seven. He puts on 92 with Vijay Mandraka, of course, the, the father of Sanjay. But that pair fall in quick succession. So now uh, they've, they've, they fall uh, in the space of nine runs. It's 224 for eight. Alan Connolly's bowling beautifully. They've still got 30 runs to go. And they've only got two wickets in hand. It's on the fifth afternoon. It's everything you could want. I mean, it's trending towards like a single digit uh, end if, if Australia take those last two wickets. But they don't uh, because uh, Chandu Borday in at number nine makes 30 not out, hitting just two boundaries. He had them running all over the place with the wicketkeeper, one of the best names, I reckon, Jeff, in Test cricket history. He only played four times. Indra Jitsinji making three not out. He was running him all over the place uh, to make sure they, they kept him on strike, that being Borday. And they sneak home by two wickets, just as would be the case uh, when they beat Australia at Madras uh, in 2001. It just India's second victory against Australia, the first coming in 1959 at Nagpur. Uh, and with the third test drawn, that was enough, uh, that win at Mumbai to square the series, one all. And a sign of things to come. I mean, we started the show today talking about 03-04 and that wonderful rivalry that built up uh, towards the, the the first couple of years or the first few years of, of the 21st century. Well, a lot of the origin stories can be found in the mid-60s and specifically uh, this test match at Bombay where India snuck over the line by two runs thanks to a couple of greats, Chandra Sekera, who started the collapse in the second innings and Tiger Pataudi who made a couple of half centuries and led the team splendidly. Beautiful stuff for Andrew Turner, 567, the story of the Tiger and the Chandra. And, and one other thing I'll note on 567, not many players have taken five for 67 in a test innings. Uh, only a handful in the history of the game. You'll never guess who one of them is. Irfan Patan. <laughs> took five for 67 in his test career. I'm sure that Terry Hogan knows that uh, as, as Winnie crashes in again. I think it's time for you to go to the park, Adam. That seems to it, be what it certainly uh, feels that being way. told. The message, <laughs> the message being conveyed from Winifred May Collins is that it is park time. It is no more story time. Story time is over. Park time begins. That was story time on the final word. If you've made it all the way to the end, congratulations. Uh, there will be more cricket stories coming up on story time around a weekend near you. There'll be the Ashes Daily during the Test match in Sydney, which will be eventful, no doubt. We don't know how, but it will be in one way or another. Uh, and there are our weekly shows, which are usually in the middle of the week, but sometimes they get chopped around with the Test matches and all of that. This was story time uh, with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. We're on the Bad Producer Podcast Network other shows there as well if you're interested in things besides cricket uh, who isn't and uh, the show is edited by Dave Collins each week thanks to Brick Lane Brewing for uh, sorting us out and backing the show and thanks most especially to everyone on the patron page who uh, literally makes the show possible and is the reason that we make story time itself so if you want to play Nerd Pledge send us in a number for story time just go to patron.com slash the final word you can fill in a number be on the show and help us keep making it. And uh, again, if you haven't yet voted for Brick Lane uh, in the Hottest 100, please do so. Click the link uh, in the show notes and you'll be directed straight to the voting portal. It's even easier than the AEC, Jeff. I think it's time that I go and jump on the slide. Here's Winnie to say goodbye one last time. Hello, Uncle Jeff. Hello. Yeah, big wave through the camera. Have nice weekends, everyone. Speak to you in Sydney. Bye. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. 
Thanks for listening to the Final Word Cricket Podcast. All of Adam and Jeff's previous episodes are available at finalwordcricket.com, including Storytime 20. That's 40 story times ago. 40. Almost a year's worth of nerd pledge. Why Storytime 20? Because it features comedian Will Anderson. It's a great chat. I think you're going to love it. Finalwordcricket.com for all things Final Word. And thanks once again to our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. Shop online at bricklanebrewing.com. Thanks for listening. More from Adam and Jeff real soon.